Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. And this is God's good word to us. Thanks be to God, right? So we are midstream in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's written by this mysterious old sage um, who goes by the title of the preacher or the teacher. And uh, the ancient term is Kohelet. Starts with the letter Q. So when I taught earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes, I dubbed him Grandpa Q. Um, and in Ecclesiastes, Grandpa Q is sharing with us advice on how to live, how to live life in this broken world. And the image that comes to my mind is something like this, right? As I think about, about the book of Ecclesiastes, right? This is, this is what I think of. Um, but Grandpa Q, the teacher, as, as I'll refer to him often today, is not just telling us some crazy bedtime story, right? Right? He is sharing with us a cautionary tale from a life lived large, right? Um, the teacher was a king. He was a man of unfathomable wealth. He had accomplished amazing feats in many fields like architecture. He had paramours beyond his wildest dreams. Money, sex, power, the teacher had lived it all. And if it escaped his personal experience, he was a man, he was a keen observer of life. He was extraordinarily wise. He collected proverbs the way Carson collects bad puns, right? Um, and so today's passage we stand with the teacher, with Grandpa Q, in front of uh, three doors. And each of these doors purports to be a gateway to meaning and satisfaction in life. And uh, when, I, when I think about three doors, inevitably my mind runs to this, like, game show that's been running since 
nonstop almost since the 1960s, right? Let's make a deal. Some of you remember that. Um, hosted by, many years by that guy. His name was Monty Hall. And he hosted this game show. And the game show was probably best known for what was called the big deal at the close of each show where the contestants or the traders who were dressed in bizarre costumes so they could be picked to be the, the trader that day, um, they had the chance to trade all their earnings for a hidden prize that was behind either door number one or door number two or door number three. Now what's fascinating about all this is that this gave rise in statistics to a thing called the Monty Hall Paradox. And uh, it kind of went like this. Uh, suppose you're in a game show. You're given the choice of three doors, right? Just like, let's make a deal. Behind one door is a car, and behind the others, goats. And so you pick a door. Say you pick number one. And the host, who knows what's behind the doors, opens a different door. Say number three. And number three has a goat. Now, you've already said you want door number one, but he hasn't showed you what's behind it. And the host asks you, do you want to switch doors? Do you want to pick number two, in other words, instead of number one? The question, the statistical paradox is, should you switch? And you're sitting there thinking, dude, there's two doors left. It's 50-50. But the statisticians have worked this out so that they tell you, yes, you should switch. That's the surprising twist in the Monty Hall paradox. You should switch. You should change doors. Now, again, in Ecclesiastes 4 today, Grandpa Q has you standing in front of three doors. And he's going to give you guidance that's even more shocking than that of the statisticians. These three doors are all purporting to tell you where to find satisfaction and joy and meaning in life. And the teacher is going to say, don't open any of them. Not a one. Don't even crack it open to see what's behind it. Don't even knock. Instead, run away from these three doors. Though they promise satisfaction and meaning, they deliver just the opposite. They suck satisfaction and joy out of your life. And so, if you want to find your way on your devices or in your uh, Actual Bibles, I guess, what do you call that? Your paper Bibles on your lap? Um, if you could find your way that to, to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we'll start where Carson left off last week in verse 4, and I'll, I'll lead us in prayer as we get ready to hear Grandpa Q's cautionary tale of the three doors. Okay, let's pray. Lord, this, these kinds of books, they call them wisdom literature, and we need wisdom. We need wisdom. So many voices, so many doors open to us and make promises that end up uh, perilous, hazardous, dangerous for us. And so this morning, safeguard our lives. Uh, guide us into your good, the good life you have for your people today. So we ask for that mercy, and we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, door number one. If you open door number one, you'd find you were looking over at your neighbor and your view was colored through the lens of a thing called envy. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity 
and a striving after wind. So behind door number one lurks this thing called envy, right? And Grandpa Q is warning us that when we work, in essence, to keep up with the Joneses, right, um, there's no lasting satisfaction here. He says it's like smoke. There's no substance. It doesn't last. It, it can't satisfy. And so what, what do we mean when we talk about envy? When, when he says uh, toil is driven by envy. Uh, a guy named Gavin Ortland wrote a book that's been really helpful for me on humility. That's the title, Humility. And today I'm going to, in the section on envy today, I'm going to quote from it extensively because I've, I've personally found this to be a super helpful book. The chapter on envy was so helpful for me. Honestly, I didn't know I struggled with envy until I read the chapter in his book on envy. And then God used it to really help me see some things in my life that were, are disordered. And uh, so he did some soul surgery on me, and I'm going to do my best to pass a bit of his wisdom on to you this morning. I'm going to quote him a, a good bit. But he writes, what is envy exactly? It is typically understood as an unpleasant and resentful feeling towards someone else's advantage. He says, I like Thomas Aquinas' brief and insightful definition of envy as sorrow for another's good. Sorrow for another's good. One therapist uh, referred to envy as Comparisonitis, an emotional sickness which can't be intellectualized or curbed by willpower alone. Right? And, and envy tugs at us. When you, when you look over at your neighbor and he invites you over and he unveils a brand new green egg smoker that he just got. And you find that you're happy for him, but there's a little diminishment to your happiness as you look back over to your house and you see your Walmart grill held up by a brick because the leg is broken off. <laughs> That's envy's work. It diminishes your joy. It happens when your neighbor, same guy, he's in his backyard, he cuts down a tree. Tree falls in their fancy schmancy in-ground pool. And you secretly smile as you duct tape your plastic kiddie pool in a desperate attempt to make it last one more season, right? That's envy's work. It robs you of empathy and compassion. See, envy turns the Christian life upside down. Paul writes in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, If one member of the body of Christ suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and share the sorrows of those who have sorrow, right? But envy makes us rejoice in another's sorrow and sorrow over their joy. Envy is anti-love. Again, Ortland writes, he says, just think for a moment about how squarely malicious envy is based on this definition. 
In fact, just as pride is the opposite of humility, envy can be thought of as the opposite of love. Love says, I'm happy when you're happy, and I'm sad when you're sad. And envy says, I'm happy when you're sad, and I'm sad when you're happy. Could anything be more terrible? You know, it's no wonder that C.S. Lewis, the great author, wrote of, about pride, envy's parent sin. He called it the essential vice. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice, especially envy, I think. It is the complete anti-God state of mind, Lewis wrote. So are you envious of someone? Maybe just a little bit? Are you sure you're not? Again, Orland says, it is possible to be completely consumed with envy and not have a clue. It hides in our hearts. Like pride, the more we succumb to it, the more blind we become to its effect on us. The worst sins often are like that. And then he says, there is no joy in your life that cannot be destroyed by envy. There is no heaven that, cannot, that envy cannot make into a hell. In the words of the Old Testament book of Proverbs, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. So, so have you cracked open door number one and let envy get any kind of foothold in your heart? Now, as I mentioned to you, I, as I sat under the envy chapter in Gavin Ortland's helpful book, I realized uh, in a new way, that I really am a person vulnerable to envy. Um, not like in big, huge, obvious ways, but uh, little, subtle, diminishing ones that reduce my ability to rejoice uh, with others because it might diminish me. Right? Um, and if there's one thing that I cannot afford to be these days, it is envious, Right? People are approaching me regularly now and saying, so how are you feeling about retirement? I'm like, I'm not retiring. <laughs> Still working. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> you know? So once they get that, they say, so, you know, what's, what are you doing? <laughs> what's your job? What's the focus? And I, one of the things that I'll sometimes say uh, kind of jokingly is that, Part of my job is to be Carson's biggest fan, right? And, uh, and Ashley's given me a run for my money, but that's a, that's a part of my job, really, uh, that I've taken on. I, I want to be Carson's biggest fan. Um, I, cannot afford to, I can't afford to be anything less than that, right? Um, because envy crouches at the door seeking someone to devour and that someone is me and through me you so i cannot afford to offer envy tainted praise of carson right yeah that was a good sermon but i really wish he would have worked this angle a little more And of course, Carson makes that easy for me. I mean, our, if you haven't figured out yet that God brought us an extraordinary uh, pastor, leader, teacher, um, you, this must be your first Sunday, right? I mean, uh, he makes it really easy for me. But envy's still there, right? 
It's slithering like a viper hidden in the long grass, waiting for someone to strike. And that someone, in this instance, is me. And it's really important that I truly am Carson's biggest fan, and I I love being that. uh, Because that chokes envy. It chokes it right out. Um, I'm helped by this thought. If I think about your success, plan for your success, Pray for your success, genuinely hope for your success, and work for your success. Then I will rejoice in your success. And envy, the door of envy, has no opening to me. So Grandpa Q warns us, stay away from door number one. Don't even crack it. And he, uh, if you haven't figured out, (laughs) Grandpa Q is kind of a curmudgeon. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he's not like this happy, upbeat grandpa who, you know, gives you jelly beans and stuff. He's, he's kind of a codger, and he, he likes to tell you what not to do. But every once in a while, he'll give you a little hint of something good and uh, helpful. And he does that here in the next couple of verses. He says, open a different door. Open the door of contentment. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his flesh. I told you, Grandpa Q was kind of a codger, Um, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So the teacher here briefly disallows sloth or voluntary unemployment or laziness with a shocking cannibalistic image that implies that you will devour all of your resources if you refuse to work. But then he points us to a better door in verse 6. Better door than the ceaseless striving and toil of an envy-driven life. He points us to a life of balance that includes quiet and toil, rest and work. Uh, One in each hand is the image that he's bringing to mind. Um, And the fuel for a life like this is contentment with what you have. Not necessarily contentment with who you are, but contentment with what you have. And the fuel for contentment is the regular practice of thankfulness for what you have now. And uh, again, Ortland brought up an image that was really helpful for me. This is a, a movie that's a joy to us in our household. It's the, the end of the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Uh, character George Bailey, uh, uh, Gavin says, helps me understand this. Here's a spoiler alert if you haven't seen the movie. Sorry about that. Sorry you haven't seen the movie, and sorry I'm going to spoil it for you. But if you've seen the movie, you know the plot. George Bailey's been given a chance to discover what the world would have been like if he'd never been born. And when he gets his life back, he's filled with gratitude and the wonder of being alive. All his financial problems seem insignificant. You remember him running through town, jubilantly yelling, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls, you know. Can you picture him eagerly arriving home to his family, hugging and kissing his children? Suddenly, for George Bailey, the world has new magic. Even the broken knob on the stairway banister merits his affection. This is a picture of what humility does, Ortland writes. It opens us to the sheer wonder of being alive. What did we do to deserve this? Humility can teach us to embrace each day with a fresh perspective of George Bailey. In the morning when we sit down to eat our breakfast, we think, who am I that I get to eat this wonderful food? What did I do to deserve this? 
When we arrive at work, we think, who am I that I get to contribute to this work, that I get to know these colleagues? When we come home at the end of the day, we think, who am I to have this wonderful family, these friends, this house, to have this life? And see, that, pe- that perspective makes sense to us in the backdrop of what the prophet Isaiah teaches in two really important places. Isaiah 64, he describes you and me, and he says, all of us have become like one who is, I'm going to quote a little bit different translation, who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Our best acts are like filthy rags before our God. And yet, by God's kindness and mercy, grace touches us daily. And by the wonder of what we we call the gospel, the good news of the death of Christ to make amends for our sins, Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so, we flee the door of envy, and we run to the door of contentment by thankfulness for the kindnesses of God that make up our days, right? Door number two. If you open door number two, you'd find you're looking into a mirror, you find me staring back at me. And all, it's kind of all about me in door number two. You could, call it, you could call this door a rugged individualism, right? An orbit, a life that orbits around me. Verse 7 and 8 starts it. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, the teacher says. One person who has no other either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So twice here, he calls this kind of life vanity, a self-orbiting life. Vanity. And a third time he says, this is an unhappy business. Strong cautions from the teacher. And he's saying, all that I do, all that I gain here is ultimately for me. And it can't seem to stop gaining for me because I'm never satisfied. Somehow, some way, everything I do ends up for me. My question is, what's in it for me? So what's in it for me? And it's the question that forms loneliness in our souls. So I'm going to be clear, this this little section is not principally or exclusively about marriage. I'm sure it has some application there, but it's not primarily what's in focus here. Um, It seems that what he has in view here is not singleness as a kind of loneliness, but selfishness and the loneliness it creates. Because surely this sin of self-orbit is not banished by marriage vows. Ask any of your married friends. And if there's a poster boy for this second door of selfish toil, it might be Dickens' Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He lives a miser for himself, unwilling and seemingly unable to share. And as a result, he's miserable. And so, too, 
the teacher says, the person who has no other, that is the person who lives only for themselves or supremely for themselves. In the teacher's little story here, he said, this is vanity twice over, an unhappy business. But just as the teacher um, pointed us towards the better door of contentment, now he points us away from this excessive self-concern towards the better door of companionship and community. Look at verses 9 to 12. Two, he says, are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And again, this is not primarily marriage he has in view here at the forefront of his mind. And you can get a sense for that as he expands it to a threefold cord and includes other friends in and that he's pointing to us towards broader friendships. And this friendful life, it's, it's happily for singles too, right? Happily for singles, he's commending it. And it's the one section in, that we're looking at today that does not bear his stamp of vanity, and instead of vanity, he lists four benefits. This is really unusual for your Grandpa Q to be going on and on in such a positive way about something. Uh, he's going to list four benefits of doing life together, of having friends, companions. He says, one, in verse 9, there's a better profit, a good return from one's labor if you have a co-laborer. Secondly, in verse 10, there's help in time of difficulty. Third, in verse 11, there's comfort in time of need. They share body heat as a traveler's out on the road. And four, protection in time of danger as a robber comes upon them in verse 12. The last three of these are illustrated by examples from the benefits of two people traveling together. And if you've ever traveled internationally and found yourself alone and in a pickle, you can, you can appreciate the value of having a travel buddy. Right? I've gotten horribly lost in other nations, and uh, it makes all the difference in the world to have someone, a companion, a traveling companion. But this morning, rather than go on about travel benefits, uh, maybe we could think together just about this room, about this assortment of people, about church. I ran across some good reflective questions from a pastor online. His name's Daryl Dash. He said, do you have someone in your life who's helping you to be more spiritually productive? Do you have a buddy who knows you're down, who will notice when you're in trouble, and who will pick you up when you fail, or when you fall, rather? Do you know what it's like to find comfort in the friendships you have with other Christians? Do you have the protection that comes from being in this together rather than going at it alone? You know, church is really something far less than what church is intended to be if you don't have friends here. Right? Friendship is right at the core of what it means to be part of a church. And uh, long ago, Pastor Charles Spurgeon said it well. He said, communion is strength. Solitude is weakness. 
Alone, the free old beech tree yields to the blast and lies prone on the meadow. In the forest, supporting each other, the trees laugh at the hurricane. The sheep of Jesus flock together. The social element is the genius of Christianity. Is the door, door number two, the door of isolation and self-focus cracked open to you? Are you kind of peeking in there? Is that your practice here? Are you alone at church by your choice? And Grandpa Q cautions against what we might call Lone Ranger Christianity, right? Just coming and going as you please and not pursuing friends. Not pursuing friends here. And he tells us that won't satisfy. And so I pray that you would find and have the grace of true friendships here. Our women's ministry does a beautiful job of creating spaces for those of you who are new or maybe you feel just like you're on the on the fringe of finding your way in their women's day their retreat um, the men's retreat does the same kind of thing it's coming up here in a couple months it's a those are beautiful places there are many others but those are beautiful places built really for people to connect with new friends and so i i hope you'll I hope you realize that friendship is a treasure to be pursued. There's a third door, door number three. If we opened this door, we would find likes. Lots and lots of likes. Um, and these are in the category of uh, fame or celebrity or renown, you know? Um, and the players in this last little section we're going to look at today in, in, in the teacher's text are a little bit challenging to sort out, but here's a simple way to, to think about it. In verse 13, um, it says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So we first meet a poor but wise youth and a second character, an old and foolish king who spurns advice. In verse 14, continues, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. And it's hard to know if this is the tale of the king or the tale of the youth, but it seems like the focus is kind of on the youth, so we'll stay with that, that approach. And, and it seems here that he ascends to the throne by wisdom, keeping with what the teacher's been telling us, that wisdom is better than folly, right? Um, he ascends to the throne by wisdom, and then the focus continues likely on him in the next two verses that conclude our section. Verse 15, I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. So one way to think about it is that the youth ascends to the throne, the wise, poor youth ascends to the throne as the foolish old king is displaced, becomes his heir. Some think that's another youth in the picture, but we'll just stay with this first guy. It's just a little simpler. He's now the successor to the foolish old king, and he rises to great fame. Many, many people follow him. But after a while, his poll numbers drop. And later on, he gets canceled, right? Um, so let me, let me see if I can illustrate it and you guys might wreck me because you may be way the heck better at history than I, than I am 
But how many of you know what these two men have in common? I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. If you know, like you're certain, you know exactly what these two guys have in common. Um, John Tyler and Chester Arthur. Anybody know what they have in common? Raise your hand. We've got one, two, three. And this guy's guessing. Don't you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. There's, a, there's like a half dozen people in the room. They were U.S. presidents, people. They're presidents of our country. Good job. And you, we, you, you didn't even know. I, and I had to look them up. I had no idea who, who these people are. If political fame is fleeting, right? We can't even remember these guys are presidents of our country. How much more popularity? I saw one stat regarding um, President George W. Bush. That early in his term, he had a 92% approval rating, and late in his second, he had 19%. I mean, that's a huge... I'm sure there are different polls that represent that differently, but if that's anything close to true. And even our most, some of our most popular presidents, like Washington and Lincoln, are now having their names removed from schools, right? And statues are being taken down in certain places around our country. Uh, fame, celebrity, renown. Um, Carson quoted this quote a few weeks ago, and it fits so well, from actor Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Right? Door number three is not the answer. Not the answer. The teacher warns us about the emptiness of pursuing our own renown. As Jesus' followers, we are to be about the renown of others. That's what lies behind this verse we often think about at North Wake in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. We are to be about the renown of others. We are to be each other's biggest fan. Supremely, we're to be about the renown of our God. Uh, let me read a little farther in that passage, farther down in that same passage, Philippians 2. It goes like this. About Jesus, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's not, I don't hear a whole lot of room for the renown of me in that passage. Do you? Again, we, we Christ followers, we live for the renown of another. We because striving after personal renown is a vapor. It's smoke and mirrors. It will not endure. It doesn't satisfy. So is the door of self-exaltation, of, of celebrity or, or fame or on a lesser scale, more common, renown. Is that door cracked open for you? All three of the doors before us in Ecclesiastes 4 are pride-related at their core, if you stop and think about it. Um, envy, self, 
um, self-concern, excessive self-concern, and uh, self-exaltation or, or fame or renown. And so the antidotes all involve humility, right? Contentment, community, the exalted, exalting of God and others. And I love the way Gavin Ortland helps us think about how the love of God for us in Christ helps us be free from that core thing that fuels all of these, that lies behind all of these doors, pride. He says, you must fill your heart with the riches of Christ's love. You must let the wonders of the gospel seep down into every nook and cranny of your soul. You must let his love, his joy, and his goodness flow into you at the deepest level possible, meeting the needs and desires that cause us to struggle with envy. But what specifically does that look like? And I love the image he paints. He says, imagine there's a little garden outside your house where it is wonderfully quiet. The flowers spread a beautiful fragrance. The birds are chirping there and the air is fresh. Whenever life is stressful, you can walk into the garden and clear your mind for a few moments. It's a place of comfort and refuge for you. Whatever else is happening, you know you can retreat into the garden to restore your emotional well-being. This is the role of the gospel for a Christian. It's your place of retreat, your refuge, the garden into which you can enter for restoration. It's free, always there, and sufficient to meet your need. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and come out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I'm sure you see how many times we spend knocking on these doors, these three doors. And uh, thank you for the times you thwart our entry, that you um, keep us from succeeding in, in these doors and keep us from prospering in these ways so that we can live the richer life, walk through the more beautiful, life-giving door of life with you, Father, by your Son. So help us to walk in his ways, in Jesus' own ways, the ways of humility, the ways of contentment and community and renown for others. Lord, have mercy on us. Mark us with these good and beautiful ways and protect us from these lies. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.